Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today, all of it brought to you by Honey. Do you like to save money? Well, of course you do. So do you like to do it when you buy stuff online without having to go find coupons and discount codes and all that good stuff? Good. We got the perfect product for you. It's called Honey. It's free to use, installs on your computer in just two clicks, and it'll save you money so you can treat yourself to something nice. Joinhoney.com slash martini. We'll talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. So, Jim, let's start with our good martini. And the good news is that the Democrats are now just as unpopular as Republicans. Uh, Alexander DeSanctis wrote on this for National Review. The news actually comes to us from the Pew Center. Pew data from last September, so September 2018, showed that most Americans had a favorable opinion of the Democratic Party. 53% of respondents said that they viewed the Democratic Party favorably, compared to 42% who said they viewed it unfavorably. The Republican Party did not fare nearly as well last September in the same survey. 43% of respondents had a favorable view of the GOP, compared to 52% who said they had an unfavorable view. This September's Pew data shows that most Americans view both the Democratic and Republican parties with disfavor and in exactly equal proportions. Just 45% of Americans have a favorable view of the Democratic Party compared to 52% with a negative view, exactly the same numbers as the GOP. 45% favorable, 52% unfavorable. So, Jim, you'd like it to be that uh, the Republicans might have improved a little more, but uh, it seems as though maybe people don't love just how far left all the lefties are swinging right now. Yeah, Greg, and I kind of want to float a theory here. I'm not the first one to come up with this, but I think there's a, this is you know a good moment to kind of take this out of the package, dust it off, and kind of re-explore to see if we see the world clearly through this lens. The American people can be generally dissatisfied people. We, we are cranky. We are irritable. We generally don't love the government we're getting. And you could argue about whether this is holding our government up to unfair standards or unfair expectations, or whether we really are governed by a whole bunch of idiots who really do uh, deserve our irritation and disapproval and contempt and all that. The last time the Democrats had two election cycles that went well for them it was 2006, 2008. You could probably argue that depending on how you want to measure it, either the last time the Republicans had two consecutive election cycles that went well for them was 2014 and 2016. Or before that, if you want, if you don't measure that one because Trump was such a different kind of candidate, you could say, okay, then 2002 to two, that midterms to 2004. Most years, somebody ends up in power and the American people, after, after a certain amount of you know, time, go, ah, oh, I didn't want that. I know I voted for the guy, but I didn't think he was going to go off and do this. And that's kind of, you know, 2004, Bush gets reelected. 2006, the midterms are terrible. Obama gets elected 2008. 2010, midterms are terrible. Republicans think they're on easy street. Obama wins re-election to their surprise 2012. Democrats are convinced that they're well on the comeback trail. The 2014 midterms are terrible. Probably the strongest argument against each party is provided by their own governance. And since 2018, Democrats have taken control of the House. And I, you have not seen uh, enormous jump in popularity of the House of Representatives or Nancy Pelosi or any of those like that. What's more, because a good portion of 2019 has been consumed by a Democratic primary that started very early, that had more candidates than ever before, and that has really, I think, dominated a, a huge portion of the political news diet for most people. 
this is what they're hearing about. They're hearing about Bernie Sanders and all of his socialist ideas. They're hearing about uh, Elizabeth Warren, um, as you as you brilliantly put it, Greg, uh, letting the Community of Homeowners Association know that your mailbox is uh, eight inches from the curb instead of the required nine inches from the curb. <laughs> Kamala Harris being really tough, but then also being unable to defend her record as a prosecutor. Biden forgetting who the previous president was. Um, and talking about meeting the Parkland kids when he was vice president and all that kind of stuff. Look, primaries spotlight the candidates and it spotlights the good parts, but it also spotlights the bad parts. And as we've seen, a lot of people love the idea of, you know, Medicare for all. Ah, government's going to pay for my health care. Also, we're going to take away your private health insurance. Whoa, 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 wait a second. I, I kind of like my health insurance. I don't want that part. I only want the good parts of the health care reform. I don't want the offsetting bad parts. So. I think that this is, you know, part of the process of looking at a candidate inevitably makes them less popular because they are more popular in theory than there are in practice. This is why candidates generally lose to generic Democrat or generic Republican. Too often voters, when asked that question, will get give the response that is more or less their ideal Democrat or their ideal Republican. Once that, you know, Democrat or Republican actually has flesh and blood next to it, all of a sudden it doesn't look so good and they get disappointed. So Trump certainly has not receded from the headlines, but the Democrat people are paying a lot more attention to who the Democrats are, what they stand for and what they want to do. And lo and behold, Americans are much less enthusiastic about it than they used to be. I think there's some good logic there, Jim. It's almost like candidates overpromise and underdeliver a lot of the time, or perhaps they're not honest about what they actually intend to do and they tend to try to paint themselves as a little more moderate than when they actually get there. They're a lot more radical, and people feel like they've been robbed. So uh, I think that uh, both parties have the problem, and nobody seems to learn the lesson. I mean, it's it's bad for any Democrat to run on any variation of, under my health care plan, you will keep your doctor, you'll keep your plan if you like it. We, we've been through this before. <laughs> they've seen the movie before. They know how it ends. They know at least some people end up not being able to keep their plan or not being able to keep their doctor because the change in the healthcare system inevitably means some health insurance plans uh, can no longer operate. If you're keeping everybody in the exact same plan that they were before, then it's not a reform. <laughs> it's a status quo. And you know the fact that people are not believing Democrats when they say this, hey, you know why? Because they lived through this in the last presidency. Yeah, I mean, Hollywood's big on sequels right now, but if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. It's kind of like uh, a sequel to Gigli or Nothing, yeah, was, nothing But Trouble or something like that. It was a flop, like and I just don't think recasting is going to make that much of a difference. <laughs> right. It's like an M. Night Shyamalan movie. Everybody can see the twist coming. Your health care plan was dead all along. Your health insurance was dead the whole time. Oh, man. Bands- Spoiler alert, everyone, for every M. Night Shyamalan movie <laughs> ever. You've just tanked his future box office. Oh, wait, he already did that to himself. <laughs> all right. Well, sequels are bad a lot of the times. Rehashing Obamacare is definitely not a good idea. But you know what's a great idea? Saving money conveniently. Because 9 out of 10 times, shopping online beats going to the store. And you already know why. You don't have to take the time to drive there, search for the parking spot, wade through the crowded store. But 9 times out of 10, if you're shopping online, you're overpaying. Unless you use Honey. Honey is a free browser extension that saves you money everywhere you shop online because Honey finds the coupon codes and applies them automatically. You have to do nothing about it. They find the codes and the other discounts and they apply them. It's amazing. Just think about how much money you could be saving if you used Honey. And over here at Radio America, Rich McFadden, we talked about him the last time we talked about Honey. Uh, He has this to say about it. As the primary Amazon purchaser for our small company, 
I don't have time to search the net for coupons and comparing pricing. Honey is a gift for managers who want to make sure they're getting the best price but don't have all day long to comparison shop on the web. Honey does it for me. Just think the average Honey user saves about $126 per year. That's like 25 cups of cold brew coffee, probably even more if you're getting hot brew, a pair of AirPods, and you know how easy they are to lose. You know, $126, that's like half a college textbook. (laughs) Uh, Or (laughs) this math, which has been helpfully provided to us, $126 $1 tacos. (laughs) Observe, if somebody offers you a $1 steak taco, you know what? I'll pay a little extra money for steak, thank you. But anyway, 10 million people are already saving with Honey. Time Magazine calls Honey, quote, basically free money. And who doesn't like that, Greg? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's like the Democrats, only it's actually free. Listen, there's really no reason not to use Honey. It's free to use, installs on your computer in just two clicks, and it'll save you money so you can treat yourself to something nice. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash martini. That's joinhoney dot com slash martini all right jim maybe wilbur ross needs to spend a little bit more time doing online shopping or something other than what he was doing last friday because as we discussed last friday the president of the united states and the mainstream media wasting an exorbitant amount of time in a spitting match about what trump said on sunday now two sundays ago about uh, hurricane forecasts and whether Alabama was at risk. So as the media was mocking him for being wrong on Sunday, Trump was pulling out hurricane projections from before two Sundays ago, showing that Alabama could, in fact, get hit by the remnants of the storm if it went right across the Florida Peninsula and back into the Gulf of Mexico. So Wilbur Ross was apparently out of town, but that didn't stop him from intervening here. New York Times, the Secretary of Commerce threatened to fire top employees at the Federal Scientific Agency responsible for weather forecasts last Friday after the agency's Birmingham office contradicted President Trump's claim that Hurricane Dorian might hit Alabama, according to three people familiar with the discussion. That threat led to an unusual unsigned statement later that Friday by the agency the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, disavowing the National Weather Service's position that Alabama was not at risk. So what happened here? Well, Mr. Ross intervened early last Friday, according to the three people familiar with his actions. Mr. Ross phoned Neil Jacobs, the acting administrator of NOAA, from Greece, where the secretary was traveling for meetings, and instructed Dr. Jacobs to fix the agency's perceived contradiction of the president. Dr. Jacobs objected to the demand and was told that the political staff at NOAA would be fired if the situation was not fixed, according to the three individuals who requested anonymity because they were not authorized to discuss the episode. So, Jim, it's anonymous sources, so uh, you hope that the story is true if it's actually being published. You never know these days. But the idea that Wilbur Ross got on the phone from halfway around the world to threaten people that they would lose their jobs. If they didn't back up Trump's outdated hurricane projection from last Sunday is ridiculous. This is one of those rare cases where I'd say, Congress, investigate the heck out of this. Ask for the memos, ask for the emails, subpoena them if you have to. First of all, the job of NOAA is to give the forecast. If the president gives a forecast that is incorrect or is off course or something like that, then the job of NOAA is to put out accurate information, period. If it embarrasses the president, too bad. In the end, this really should not embarrass the president because there are bigger deals to worry about. You don't have to run around with Sharpies on maps and stuff like that. The president was listing off southern states that could be affected. 
He said Alabama. He shouldn't have said Alabama. Or at one point, there was a small portion of Alabama in one part of the cone of potential area that could be affected. This is not that big a deal. If this is accurate, and I'll give you that, that tiny you know, sliver of possibility that this is all being made up by somebody or something like that. If Wilbur Ross uh, really did say, you got to put out this statement or you're fired, then Wilbur Ross should go. This is not the job of the Commerce Secretary. Look, I understand, you know, that, that nobody likes to embarrass the boss. Nobody likes to see, you know, Trump has a volcanic temper or something like that. Look, if somebody tells you you have to put out wrong information so that the president doesn't look bad, you have the option of resigning. You have the option and, you know, tell everybody, say, no, the forecast says it's going to go in this direction. The president said it's going to go in that direction. I'm being asked to lie to the public in order to save the president's ego. I can't do this. It is amazing that they got escalated to this point. It speaks badly of the president. This is a legit issue. The whole Sharpie gate is not. The fact that, you know, Brian Steltzer is running, a, I don't know, is it, a, is it 24 hours of straight coverage, it seems? <laughs> the president misspoke. The president made a mistake. He makes a lot of mistakes if you pay attention. This is not that shocking. This is not even going to rank of a thousand worst things Trump has done this year. And it's kind of amazing to watch people obsessing about this. But when the people at the top start telling other people in the federal government who have to make life and death decisions, who have to inform the public with accurate information, start telling people to put out inaccurate information, then it becomes a big deal. And then it becomes something where anybody who is instructing federal employees to lie to the public, barring some sort of like national security issue or something like that, you should be dismissed. We got enough lies from the elected officials. We don't need the bureaucrats jumping in on this too. All right, let's move to our crazy martini now, Jim, and let's get in the Wayback Machine because... If you loved Betomania from 2018, Betomania was kind of the sequel, since we're talking about sequels today, to Ossoff Mania from 2017. John Ossoff was a young man in Georgia. I think he was might not even been 30 years old at the time of the special election in the Georgia 6th Congressional District in 2017. That's because Tom Price gave up that seat to become Health and Human Services Secretary. And so there was an open seat. Uh, Price had won that uh, race quite easily in 2016. So it was John Ossoff against Karen Handel. Karen Handel won, but John Ossoff was the golden boy of the Democratic media. And now there are two open Senate seats in Georgia. Well, not open. David Perdue is running for re-election next year. And then Johnny Isaacson is retiring at the end of this year. So that one will be open and on the ballot in 2020. So John Ossoff is back. And of course, if you're running for statewide office in Georgia, the place you're going to make your announcement is on the Lawrence O'Donnell show on MSNBC on Monday night. A couple of different clips from this to reacquaint you with Mr. Ossoff. First of all, here's Lawrence O'Donnell explaining John Ossoff falling short in 2017. John Ossoff came within three points of winning that House seat, which was a big clue about the big blue wave that was to follow in the next election. Three points, uh, certainly competitive, but I'm not sure it's historic. But that's the way John Ossoff sees it. I didn't sit back in despair. I stood up and ran for Congress in a district where the last Democrat had lost by 23 points. And everyone counted me out. But it became one of the toughest, closest races in American political history. And, of course, John Ossoff is running in Georgia, which is a competitive state. A lot of folks think Democrats have a chance. So you figure your Democratic star is going to be kind of a middle-of-the-road guy, not trying to be too alarmist. Here's John Ossoff. And we need now to mount an all-out attack on political corruption in America, or I'm not sure our democracy will survive. Jim, what do you make of John Ossoff 2.0? 
First of all, Greg, I hope he got a marriage out of it. <laughs> for those of you who don't remember, he had a live-in girlfriend for many years. And it was one of those things where it came up in some profile piece. And a couple of people were like, wait, they've been living together for how many years? He hasn't popped a question yet? And this was, you know, not the most important uh, position of John Ossoff or something. But let's just say it hit a chord with some people who really had this sense of, oh, he's that guy who leaves his girlfriend hanging, waiting for a ring for year after year after year. You know, many people are familiar with that kind of uh, young man who never quite, you know, pulls the trigger, so to speak. Sometime during the campaign, he got engaged and everyone's like, yay! And everyone kind of joked like, oh my goodness, was it like the public pressure that made him finally get on it? go out and get a ring? Uh, but I haven't seen any coverage of the wedding, so I don't know if Ossoff has gotten married. I hope things have worked out between him and his special young lady. And, you know, like, you know, there's a good rom-com, romantic comedy waiting to be written about this sort of situation. Look, kind of underwhelming in that special house election. You know, there's the thing. You and I, or at least I think a lot of conservatives, would not have this kind of grinding the teeth animosity towards certain Democratic candidates if the media wasn't constantly telling us, oh my goodness, isn't this the best guy ever? You know, when you look at the resume, and they're just, just some guy. Intern worked on the Hill for a while. Yes, he looked, he's, he's, you know, skinny, very young looking, you know, he, he looks like the fresh-faced intern who comes in, that, you know, at your, uh, your local office or something like that. We were told that this was a tough race. We were told that Democrats were charging hard and uh, the Republican won. Now, the great irony is Democrats won that seat in the 2018 midterms. So yes, this was actually a suburban district where the Trump brand was hurting Republicans and the right kind of Democrat could win. It just turns out that John Ossoff was not the right kind of Democrat. So when they say, oh, we've got star power in this race, Greg, this is a really generous definition of star power. Um, and the second thing that kind of jumps out of that is that I'd be curious about which Senate race he decides to run in. He's running against Purdue. Oh, interesting. So like you've got the open seat race, which looks like, oh, you know, that's the easy one. You know, you don't have any incumbent to knock off. You know, voters aren't going to be familiar with the Republican nominee. Incumbents always have an advantage. You're running against the incumbent. You have, you have a tougher, you know, road to hoe. And I don't know if that's, uh, I was waiting for every Democrat to jump in the open seat race and nobody wants to take on uh, the other one. And the other intriguing thing is to say, you know, maybe you should just have one primary, one candidate gets the open seat race, one candidate gets the other seat race. But, uh, no, he's taking on, he's taking on, uh, on Purdue like that. All right. Good luck, pal. Bonus martini, Jim. Bonus martini. Donald Trump has essentially fired National Security Advisor John Bolton. As we record here, he tweeted about 15 minutes ago, quote, I informed John Bolton last night that his services are no longer needed at the White House. I disagreed strongly with many of his suggestions, as did others in the administration. And therefore, I asked John for his resignation, which was given to me this morning. I thank John very much for his service. I will be naming a new National Security Advisor next week. So... Jim, what are we up to? A th- is it three or four national security advisors now? Uh, John Bolton, uh, more of a, an aggressive foreign policy, perhaps, than uh, President Trump. We just heard reports over the weekend that he was not a fan of having the Taliban at Camp David. And I'm sure there's been plenty of other disagreements over the last uh, however many months it's been. What do you make of the move? Frustrating on many levels. I feel a little bit bad for John Bolton, a longtime friend of National Review. Used to run into him in the green rooms at uh, the cable networks pretty regularly. Whenever I saw him, it was a sign something was blowing up somewhere. I would say, Mr. Ambassador, where's trouble today? I think he tried to do his job as best he could. I think everyone knows where he comes from. He's definitely considered hawkish on most measures. He was kind of an odd partnership with Trump. Trump has these two very contradictory instincts. We're going to bomb the you-know-what out of ISIS, 
but we're going to bring all the troops home. He likes to talk tough, but he also wants to be a peacemaker. And Trump doesn't do a great job of, of navigating those two instincts. He's, you know, perfectly willing. He's willing to call off the attack on Iran at the last minute, willing to meet with Kim Jong-un more than once, stepped over into North Korea. Uh, he's expressed a willingness to meet with Rouhani and other, you know, Iranian leaders. There's really very few folks that Trump is not willing to meet with, including as of, you know, earlier this week, you know, the president wanted to meet with the Taliban leaders at Camp David. And you have this sneaking suspicion that this turned into a, uh, a breaking point between the two of them. Look, one of, there, there are a whole bunch of problems with the president of the United States, but a, a big one, and I've tried to explain this to a bunch of folks who were, you know, big time supporters of his, where I said, look, every president comes to Washington with their own sort of kitchen cabinet, right? Meaning their own longtime advisors, people who've been working on various issues and studying various things and thinking about, okay, how do you turn this vision into policy, into changes in the law that will do what you want them to do? Trump didn't have this. And this is a great weakness heading, you know, heading into this administration because you got to find people. You got to find people to do all these jobs in the federal government. And it looked like for you at first it was going to be Flynn. Flynn went into his problems. Um, then we have this, you know, the various generals coming in, McMaster. Trump doesn't like being hemmed in. And it sounds like Trump doesn't like being corrected. And it sounds like Trump doesn't like being told, Mr. President, I don't think that's a good idea. And here's why. Well, John Bolton is not going to be a yes man. And it was pretty clear that, you know, Bolton and Trump did not see the world the same way. I assume Bolton stuck around because his attitude was, if I'm at the table, at least there's a chance I can persuade the president. Instead of, if I'm out, if I'm outside the administration, there's no way I can influence policy in any way. I don't, you know, we have vision to see if and when Bolton starts speaking more openly about his time in this position. Just from what we know about what Bolton has said in the past and what Trump has said while he's president, this is probably an extraordinarily frustrating relationship for both men. With Bolton constantly trying to push the president in directions he doesn't want to go, and in Bolton's mind, the president seemed to refuse to confront threats that he feel need to be confronted. All in all, though, I you know felt a little bit better with Bolton sitting there at the table. He's gone. We'll see who goes. The, the president of the United States is not supposed to cycle through four uh, national security advisors in one term. You need stability. You need to have the same people doing the same thing for a while. It is not you know the old joke of you know uh, the the drummer in Spinal Tap, the number three guy in Al Qaeda who keeps getting fired. Um, I'm trying to think which NFL coaching gig you end up having the most people in the most in the shortest amount of time. You know, you need stability. You need continuity. You need one vision. You know, and, and Bolton was there for what a year, Greg? If that, I can't remember anymore. But yeah, it wasn't long. What you know, this is this is an administration that already has a hard time getting good people to work for them, uh, and you're now heading into the last year and change of a term with no guarantee of that second term. Um, I imagine there are not a lot of people who'd want to step into this role particularly if the perception is uh, certainly McMaster and uh, Bolton both found the job extraordinarily frustrating and a president that didn't listen to him and was frequently you know, willing to meet with the Taliban uh, and willing to tweet out the first thought that pops into his mind whenever, you know, whenever he feels like it. This is not a good formula to enact the policies you want, Greg. Definitely frustrating. I have the highest respect for John Bolton. I've had the chance to talk with him quite a few times. And uh, he's very, very intelligent. And even if you disagree with his ultimate conclusions on policy, uh, it's not because it's a knee-jerk reaction. He's an expert on the issue, and uh, he just comes to a different conclusion. But uh, it's it's a great loss of, of talent and experience right there for sure. Jim, another day. See you tomorrow.
See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And be sure to tune in again on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. In the meantime, go save yourself some money over at Honey. Joinhoney.com slash martini.